did God create the heavens and earth? Um, or was it evolution? How, how did we really come to be? Where did we come from? Like, where did the universe come from? It brought me to a point where I had to dig deeper past the surface of God created the heavens and earth. I think sometimes I struggle believing that God's grace covers everyone and every situation and every single sin. There's just not an answer for everything. I believe in the healing God, but my situation speaks contrary to that. The pain was overwhelming. I didn't really know if He was there. Why won't He heal me? Why won't He hear me? There are just so many things in the world that unexplained you would wonder how a loving, forgiving God would even allow to happen. I don't understand how someone can just give up and give in and, again, blindly trust and uh, blindly have faith in something. One thing I really struggled with and wrestled in the Bible was the fact that the devil exists. If God is good, why did he let my cousin die? You know, why did he let my parents uh, split apart? All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the cafeteria. Um, it's like if the air's not on, we would like burn up. So I guess the worst of two evils is that you have to hear that sound. I guess I could move over a little bit. Uh, it is kind of annoying, but let's just let's just press through. Um, we're going to finish our series dealing with doubt today. And just to backtrack a little bit, what we've been doing for the last six weeks, seven including today, uh, is look at those most prominent reasons why people... Um, avoid avoid faith in Christianity, of the arguments against it, really, the Christianity and the God of Christianity. And, uh, and so we've looked at, uh, can there only be one religion? And uh, if, if God is loving, why does he send people to hell? And what does science say about Christianity? Doesn't it disprove it? We looked at, on Easter, the doubting the resurrection and that difficult topic. And then we sort of turned the corner... Uh, Last week, as we looked at clues for God, that there are reasons to believe there's a God that exists because of what we can see. But ultimately, you can't prove God. You have to receive him by faith. And so as we conclude our series today, we're going to talk about uh, the gospel. OK, we're going to talk about the gospel. And uh, my sermon today really is going to be just nothing but an articulation of the gospel from Second Corinthians chapter five. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there. We're going to be in. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. This is one of the seminal texts that uh, you can turn to in your Bible that has a succinct uh, expression of the good news of Jesus and what God has done for us through Jesus. So we're going to read these verses out loud. If you don't have a Bible, I'll grab one from the center, uh, center aisle of seats underneath that seat and use it as we're working through the scriptures today. We're going to read these verses out loud. All right, read with me. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we want to regard Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for um, just being able to gather as your church. We thank you for this space and for Fairfax County that uh, is gracious enough to allow organizations like ours to use this school. We thank you for your church, uh, for um, salvation through Jesus, and for the message of the gospel. God, would you open our hearts to receive your word this morning? Would you uh, open our ears to hear? Would you, um, God, would you place something in front of us so that this, this message that we've heard hundreds, perhaps even thousands of times for those in this room that have grown up in the church and those who would call themselves Christians. God, sometimes we can miss the message because we've heard it so much. God, would you awaken us freshly to the good news and remind us that it's good news, not just for people out there, but it's good news for me and my heart. God, I pray that you do that for all of us and, uh, and that we would grow from it. grow closer to you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So that all of us can look at the world and how it works, and um, we should all have no problem noticing that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. And Christianity calls that something sin, S-I-N. There's a lot of confusion, actually, what sin is, though. Firstly, the mere concept of sin is considered quite offensive, to a lot of people. Some people would say it's even ludicrous that we would have a concept of sin. Of course, we've been through six weeks of looking at reasons why people doubt faith and why they doubt Christianity or the God of Christianity. And so uh, the interpretation uh, that sin is ludicrous comes from this thought of not even knowing what sin actually is. And so there's a lot of ways that we can define sin. Very simply, sin is, is, is waywardness. It's it's that part of us that uh, knows the right way to go, and we choose to go the, the wrong way. One person described it like this. All sins are attempts to fill voids. That comes from Barbara Brown Taylor. She's an Episcopal priest. Um, interestingly, she's probably one of the most uh, profound preachers in America. Um, she's called that. And here's what uh, Reverend Taylor says. She says, all of us have a God-shaped whole in our in our being that's supposed to be filled by by God himself and sin is when we try to cram all kinds of other things in that hole that only God should fill God himself God's presence the knowledge of God um, Soren Kierkegaard is a an author a poet and a theologian from the 17th century and he says that sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from God if you ask the person on the street, then sin is doing bad stuff, right? Uh, if, if that person on the street has any knowledge of God whatsoever, then sin is breaking, breaking God's rules, breaking divine rules. But if you've been 
Uh, if you've read the Bible at all, if you've been a Christian for a while, then perhaps you've read the Ten Commandments. and You know that first commandment uh, principally, you shall have no other gods besides me, informs us uh, pretty succinctly what sin actually is. It's not just doing bad things, but it's making good things the ultimate thing. It's, it's when we take uh, things that could be used for good means and we worship those things, elevating it uh, to a point of, of significance and worth such that it outweighs God's own significance and worth in our life. And so we could, def- we could keep going on defining sin in many different ways, but perhaps... Uh, There's more importance to this concept of sin than just defining it. Sin has consequences. And the first consequences that we see from sin is simply that it has personal consequences. Sin destroys us. Think of all those petty things that we do. Lying, cheating, stealing. Think of those things in our society that you could do and get put in jail, incarcerated, or perhaps even um, experience capital punishment for. Sin destroys us externally, but sin also destroys us Internally, Kierkegaard had this idea of sin being a displaced identity. Identity apart from God is inherently stable, unstable. When you create an identity for yourself without God, your sense of worth might appear to be sound on the outside, but it never is. And when you depend on something outside of God to gain significance and worth, and that thing fails you, then, in a sense, your whole life is going to crumble. Take, for example, if, if parenting is your thing and, and you find your significance because your kids are good kids, the minute your kids stop being good kids, then your life is going to crumble and that thing that you've placed your sense of worth and significance in, it's going to crush you. But not just parenting, it's, it's with sex or physical health or good looks or perhaps even your political party. If something goes wrong in any of those areas and we've put our, I mean, all of our self into it, our identity, our significance, our worth, we've staked our claim, our very life into that thing and that thing fails you, then your life is going to be crushed and it's as if you've been destroyed. That's what sin does to us. So sin has a personal consequence. Sin also has a cosmic consequence. God created the world and we hear the refrain after every day of creation that, God pronounced it good. After the seventh day, God pronounced that everything was very good and God rested. He was so happy with everything that he had made that he rested. God put Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, gave them some commands, and they disobeyed God. They did what he said not to do. Before they, before they did that thing, though, when God pronounced the world very good, What the Bible tells us that, I mean, creation itself was in harmony with itself. Humanity, creation above the the ground, creation below the ground, all the animals and vegetation. I mean, it's like they were singing a song together. Everything was in harmony. The Hebrew word to describe life on earth uh, that God pronounced very good is the word shalom. Everything was at peace. But of course, sin ensues and what happens? Everything falls apart. Romans 8, Paul tells us that the fall, the fall of humanity, humans sinning, doing what God said not to do, was so devastating that the whole fabric of God's created order is unraveled. And this is where we get disease and genetic disorders and famine and natural disasters and our aging. I mean, isn't that, I mean, that's like, who wants that? But not just that, it's oppression and war and crime and violence. 
The world has fallen because of sin. All these things represent a loss of shalom, a loss of God's peace. The world's falling apart physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, culturally. That's the world that we live in. Perhaps the most visible consequence of sin is death. Physical death, we all will cease to breathe and will be put in the ground and our body will decay, turning back into the dust it was created from. But also a spiritual death, which is a more significant death, because if God is the one that created us and we were meant to be in his presence, there's a God-shaped hole in our being that only God can fill. When we are devoid of God, then we have, we have died. That's what spiritual death is. And then hell would be um, an existence like that in perpetuity, forever. Here's the, here's the key element of the text we just read. It says that sin leads to death, both that physical and spiritual death. We have to be careful when we, when we read Paul and we see the word death or dying because Paul means several things when he's talking about death, particularly in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about um, death from the perspective of um, um, the, the Excuse me, I've got to get my thoughts together. He's talking about death from the perspective of it, it leads to something that we don't want it to lead to. But that's why the Christian gospel is called good news. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for our sin. Think about that. You're a person that sins, and whether you believe in God or not, the Bible tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the world. So the natural mind, I mean, that, that's, that's not something we want to hear. That is offensive to me, both theologically and societally. First, people don't want to hear about more death. With all the, the murder, death, and kill that's going on in our country, who wants to hear that, that God is a part of that death in the first place? Many people question personally why God would have to kill his son for me. With all the axe murderers, all the pedophiles, all the people that do bad stuff in the world, and God has to kill his son for me? Am I really that bad? But therein is the reason for the cross. Think about it. The whole concept of, of death can be summarized in this statement. The sacrifice of the innocent for the guilty. That's the main thing that we see in the cross. It's also the principal point in the gospel. And so the story of the Bible is the story of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We were all created. We have fallen. We're invited to receive Jesus' redemption by his death on the cross. And then we're invited to a restoration that will last forever as we um, reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so in creation, uh, in Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve uh, were created perfect and they sinned. And when they sinned, they realized that they were naked. And what do they do? One of their first reactions was to cover up. One of the consequences of sin, we cover up ourselves. But God didn't leave them to himself. What does God do? God kills an animal. He sacrifices the, in, the innocent for the guilty. He kills an animal. He takes the, the skin of that animal and he covers up Adam and Eve's flesh with that animal. And we see that pattern over and over again in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system is based upon this concept of 
innocent for the guilty. In the Old Testament, God was God set up a principle that the innocent animal suffered. He was sacrificed, in other words, in place of guilty humans. And we see this replicated in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the advent of Jesus, God's innocent son suffers for the sins of guilty humanity. And again, to, to most of us, even if you're a Christian, that's kind of offensive, isn't it? But it's biblical. On the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us. And that's what verse 21 talks to us about. It's, it's talking about Easter. Remember on Good Friday, Jesus hung on the cross. And in, on the cross, he's dying in our place for our sin. On the cross, he is uh, meeting out the, the wrath of God for us. In that moment when Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries, cries out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? He's receiving in himself all the sin that we deserve. God is forsaking him on the cross. And what our text is telling us is that Jesus is rejected so we can be accepted. Jesus is forsaken so that we can be welcomed. But to be accepted by God, here's the thing, folks. The Bible teaches us there has to be a transaction. There has to be a faith transaction where you respond to what God has done to take your sin and place it on Jesus. At the same time, he's giving you Jesus righteousness. It's a transaction where we cease to be our own savior and we receive Jesus as savior. We cease to be our own boss and we trust Jesus as boss. And when that transaction happens, that's when death of, the death of Christ begins to make sense. His death is a substitute for yours. And this is the first truth of, uh, that our text conveys about the gospel. So we're going to, I mean, we're just talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? The first truth that this text tells us that Jesus' death is substituted for ours. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded, that th- concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Jesus has died, and therefore all have died. Again, we have to be careful when we're talking about death and Paul, but principally Paul is saying Jesus died a death for us. That's all he's saying. Jesus' death is applied to us as followers of Jesus. He was punished in your place for your sin. He died on your behalf. And because of that, the Bible tells us his righteousness is given to us. That's the the second principle that this text is telling us about the gospel. His righteousness is imputed to us, Romans 3 would tell us. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is not a word that we use in our, um, our vernacular today. I mean, when's the last time talking to a buddy of yours, you actually use the word righteous or righteousness. Anybody? So check it out. All right. I'm old enough to remember like in the 60s, there was this, there was this white duo called the Righteous Brothers. Southern, Southern gospel kind of, kind of group. Righteous Brothers. In the 80s, we actually did use the word righteous. All right. So in the 80s, there was no hot. You didn't say hot. That was, that was stupid. That's like the temperature. Um, and so if you saw a hot, y'all, uh, you know, uh, a good-looking girl, if something was just like slamming good, then it was righteous. So a lot of things could be righteous. I mean, that, that group could be righteous. This song could be righteous. That girl was like, she was righteous, right? All right, the Bible doesn't talk like that. Righteousness is it's your identity. It's what Kierkegaard was telling us. 
Our identity is caught up in righteousness. It's your significance. It's what you're using to absolve yourself from sin. It's what you're using to commend yourself to God. All right, uh, God is hovering down. He's saying, how are you going to get to heaven? And you're saying, Lord, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. That's your righteousness. It's, it's you commending yourself to God. The gospel says, this passage as well, that Jesus died to give us his righteousness. That's where your righteousness should come from. His absolution, his recommendation, his right standing before God. Perhaps the, right, the, the perfect illustration is, is Jesus' baptism. So the gospels portray that Jesus, 30 or so years old, he comes to the, the Jordan River. His cousin, John the Baptist, is there. John meets him, and he's about to be baptized. And what happens? There's a dove floating down, signifying this is the guy. This is like the dude, the Messiah. And then we hear a voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's interesting that that voice was spoken, and the words that, that God spoke to, to Jesus uh, happened before Jesus had done any miracles. I mean, he had done nothing except be born and grow up. He hadn't fulfilled any of the prophecy that said that he would you know, be a miracle worker and be the... Uh, the one, the, the servant that would die on the cross for our sin. And what did God do? God pronounced him righteous. And so what that means for you is, is when you trust Jesus, when you receive him as your Savior, ceasing to be your own Savior, you, you gain his righteousness. Romans 3 says it's imputed to you. It's gifted to you. And so it's as if God is looking down on you from heaven and he's pronouncing this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. He's saying those same words to you because you have Jesus' righteousness. You're not commending yourself with the righteousness of your own. And that, that should be a big deal because that's the gospel. And verse 17 carries that concept on. Verse 17 is, is one of the quoted, most quoted verses in all the Bible. It's one of the first Bible verses that I actually uh, memorized as a, as a young Christian going through Navigators. If anyone, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, uh, the new has come. In Christ is a, a mega theme in Paul's theology. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but basically it's, it's saying that you're linked to Jesus covenantally as you come to faith in him. All that is Jesus and all that's happened to him has happened to you, which means his death is your death. More importantly, his life is your life. But more importantly, and this is, what, this, this is how this verse affects me, it says you're new. Have you ever thought about that? If you're a Christian, the, the, Paul is saying everything that you've done before, any way that you've identified yourself that stuff is like behind you and, and you're new. You're new before God and that's how you can present yourself to him. Not in a, uh, a worldliness or righteousness of your own, but new because Christ has made you new. Now, some of you in this room, I mean, just live holy lives. You, you got saved when you were two days old. You went to church all your life and you lived, like, lived a squeaky clean life. And that would be cool. It's cool to have a testimony that I haven't sinned overtly very much and God has kept me from a lot of stuff. But here's the truth. At least half or more of us in this room haven't lived a squeaky clean life. I mean, we've lived like hellions, right? And so we come to faith in Jesus with a little baggage. And when you come to Jesus with a little bit of baggage, how good does it feel to read these words that you're actually new? You're forgiven. 
God has taken your sin and he absolved you from it. And it's not like you had to work for it or that you had to strive for it. What do you have to do? You just simply believe in what God has done through Jesus. And when you really get the verse, when you get, really get the concept behind the verse, what it does, it produces not a self-righteous superiority. It produces humble confidence that God loves you, not because of you. He loves you in spite of you. He loves you because of Jesus. Because we can't make ourselves new. Have you tried to make yourself new? Have you tried to stop something and it won't and you can't get it to stop? Have you tried to clean yourself up only to have something in you that wants to get dirty again? We don't make ourselves new. And here's why. It wasn't our work. It's Jesus work. Our relationship to God is not based on our record. It's based on Jesus record. And when you begin to understand that, it makes verse 15 operate in your life. Look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was, was raised. This, this verse is saying we get the power to not live only for ourselves. The power to not live only for ourselves. Before being a Christian, a lot of us, if not most of us, live for ourselves. That's kind of offensive. Um, I'm, I'm stereotyping a little bit. It, it, it's probably not as bad as I'm saying it, but I think that's biblical. All of us are a little selfish. Most of us are, are stuck on ourselves, and we think of ourselves a lot. If you think about the first sin of the Garden of Eden, it was the sin of selfishness. Adam and Eve didn't want what God wanted for them. They wanted what they wanted, and they chose it, and that led to sin. I think most of our lives are about me, my hobbies, my entertainment, uh, my fulfillment, my job, my work, my life. I'm the center of attention. If it's snowing outside, I'm the unique snowflake, right? If, if there's a conversation going on in the audience, when I walk up, I want y'all to be saying good things about me. And most of us have, I mean, if you, even if you don't say it, most of us have this kind of thing going on in us where we want to be about and even have other people be about our own self-interest. Here's what Paul says. Jesus gives us the power not to focus on ourselves. Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, would say it this way. He says, it's not to think of yourself, uh, not to think less of yourself. In other words, to put yourself down. He says, it's to think of yourself less. And many of us need to simply do that. And uh, 2 Corinthians 15 is saying, God gives us the power to do that. Come to faith in Jesus. He gives you the Holy Spirit and he gives you the power not to put yourself front and center all the time. When you truly understand the gospel, when you receive it in faith, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the change agent. He's the one that makes you new. And so when you get the Holy Spirit and Christ makes you new by the Spirit, he gives you new stuff. He gives you new hobbies. He gives you a new impetus to live life. He gives you a new desires for entertainment. He gives you a new life. And that new life spills over into everything else. New money, new, well, I don't know about new money. A new perspective on money, right? A new perspective on relationships. A new perspective on the world that you're living in. The old things in our lives begin to pass away. God does something in you to change you. This is where this happened to me. It happened at West Point. So... I grew up going to church, but not being a Christian at all. I, I don't remember hearing the gospel, although I went to church in and out with my parents. At the age of 
15 or 16, I started going to church with my grandmother because I sang. Everybody in my, in my, on my mother's side of the family sings, and she wanted me to sing in the choir. So I started going to, to, to church with my grandmother. And I, I mean, I was a decent kid. I did what I was told. I was a rule follower. And so you know how rule followers are. Um, on the outward, I was following all the rules. On the inside, I was kind of rebellious and a hellion. I wanted to do my own thing. I was independent. My parents saw me doing what I was supposed to do. And so I kept that appearance, that I was doing the right thing on the outside, while on the inside I was sinning, right? So I get to West Point, and uh, I wasn't looking for God, but Jesus found me. Uh, And he found me when I was at my lowest. In all those ways that I thought I was good, in all those ways that I was commending myself to God, at West Point, like it does in almost every every military atmosphere, I was stripped of all those things. I was stripped of my popularity. I was stripped of my, my academic prowess. I was stripped of, of any thought that I was a good athlete. I was stripped of any, any way that I would have been promoting myself because I was amongst all these young men and women who were the best of the best from all around the country and some around, from around the world. And God brought me in my young world to the lowest that I ever been. And so... Uh, I sought out a way to be social. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for God at all, but God found me. I joined a, a cadet gospel choir. It's a choir that used to travel and sing. Um, and that choir had a, a, gospel, a Bible study through the Navigators. And this wasn't instant, but over about a six-month time, I read the Bible for the first time. I was hearing about God and his word. I was hearing about Jesus and the good news of him dying on the cross in our place for our sin. And I learned through the Gospel of John over a whole semester in this slow change process that I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. And Jesus was the Savior that had come to die on the cross for my sin. And if I received him, he would make me new. I mean, this verse. And I would not think of myself more than I should. In fact, I would think of myself less. I would put God before, before me. I would put other people before me. I mean, this, these verses came alive in my life before I even knew what these verses were. You know, one of the main thrusts of the gospel is reconciliation. And that's one of the main thrusts of this text as well. In fact, it's repeated four times. Reconciliation is a, is a Greek word meaning to change or exchange. This was originally a financial term. It was is, uh, used... Uh, like the concept of uh, a, a ledger or a checkbook. You're trying to uh, balance your income and your outflow, that kind of reconciliation. We even do that now. Um, in the first century, just much like today, it was an exchange of goods and services. You brought your goods or your money, and you either exchanged your money for the good or your good for, uh, for pay. And that's how it was used in much of the first century. Paul is the first one in the Bible to use it relationally. And here's how he uses it. He uses it to describe the hostility between two factions or two two enemies. The enemy became a friend by removing the hostility. So the hostility is removed so the friendship can be restored. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. To have reconciliation, you have to deal with the hostility. To have reconciliation, you have to deal with that which keeps you separated from someone 
who is opposed to you or someone who is your enemy. And so think about this. I mean, what is it that keeps us as humans from God? It's the S word, right? It's, it's our sin. So reconciliation has a good news component and a bad news component. The bad news is that we're sinful and God punishes sin. He hates sin. The good news is Jesus has died for our sin to reconcile us to God. Here's the thing. When I was at West Point, it's crazy. I had to be convinced that I was a sinner. I didn't know it. And perhaps you didn't grow up around Christians, didn't grow up going to church, and you're not yet convinced that you're a sinner. And so what what did it take? It took me going from thinking very highly of myself because I was good. I, I was good in everything. To going to West Point and God lowering me to the point where I knew I, you know, bring me to a point where I knew I needed help. And that's what it took. Perhaps that might be what it takes for you. I was being good and, and I was I was recommending myself as my own righteousness to God. And some of you are like me. You don't recognize that you're a sinner. But there's probably a few of you that, I mean, know that you're a hellion, that know that, that the things that you've done in life deserve some kind of punishment or at least some kind of reprimand. You have tangible, tangible evidence in your life that you were a sinner. I think a lot of times we, we can see this horizontally. We can see uh, our life and some of the, the things that waywardness or sin in us destroys relationship or perhaps even gets us in trouble, gets us in trouble with authorities, our, 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 our family, um, our, our bosses, the law. But a lot of times that's hard to see vertically. You see, sin happens horizontally, but it also happens vertically. In fact, it happens vertically first. When we sin, we sin against God first before we ever sin against each other. And if you are sinning, it says that God doesn't like you. Perhaps, more importantly, he doesn't like your sin. We learn from Scripture that God is angry at sin. He hates it. That's an ugly word, but it's true. If you're a sinner without Jesus, his anger is directed at you. He's angry at your sin. And his holiness won't allow him to accept you because you meant well. His justice won't allow him to just wink at your misdoing because, well, she just had a bad life. God must punish your sin. And that's offensive. It's countercultural to the life, to the world that we live in. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And it teaches that so that you'll realize the bad news has to be really bad before the good news is going to be any good to us. We have to see the bad news for what it is before the good news is appealing to us at all. And the good news of the Bible is that God reconciles. He reconciles through Jesus. Though you were sinful, God sent a substitute for your sin. Though God demands holiness, God himself in the person of his, of his son lived a holy life in your place. He did it on your behalf. Though you deserve death, eternal punishment, and eternal separation from God through Jesus, what has God done? He's rejected his son so that he would welcome you. He's cast his son aside, forsaken him on the cross, Punishing him with wrath so that you wouldn't have to endure that. 
Jesus was buried, died, he rose again from the dead, he conquered our two main enemies, sin and death, so that we would experience life. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's also the message of reconciliation. That's good news for us. And that's the gospel, folks. Here's the thing about the gospel. It's objective. And so whether you believe it or not, it's true. It exists whether you want to acknowledge it or not. It exists whether you think it's, uh, whether you believe it or not. The Bible tells us we can't add anything to it. We can't contribute to it. There's nothing we can do to make this good news better. And that's why verse 18 says, this is all from God. This is God's work. The, the work of reconciliation is God's work. You don't do a thing to earn it. You can't do a thing to contribute to it. And this is where the text turns. The gospel doesn't turn. It's unfolding. This is where the text turns. And this is where we, we get brought into the story. Remember, the, the, the story, the narrative of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's also the narrative of the gospel. And we are, get, we are being brought into the story as followers of Christ. Because the work of reconciliation is God's, but the message is ours. And that really is my, I mean, I've gone through all that to get to this point. The message of reconciliation is ours. Look at verse 18 through 20 one more time. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know the word ambassador. We have ambassadors for our country to, to foreign countries. An ambassador is a messenger, it's an, uh, an, an authorized agent of one land, one sovereign representing them to another. When you're an ambassador uh, in the first century, but also today, you're not representing yourself. You're representing uh, a person. Principally, you're representing the king. And so when you're going and presenting yourself, it's not your message. It's the king's message. It's not you as a diplomat going and bringing your solution to a, an issue or a diplomatic problem. You're bringing the king's solution or solution to that issue or that diplomatic problem. You're just there as a messenger. You're just there as, uh, you know, conveying something about the issue at hand. You're representing someone else, not doing this on your own, winging it. And I think we get this wrong all the time. When I was at West Point, uh, being disciple and navigators, one of the things that I learned, I learned four things. The things that, you know, the foundation of my Christianity was, was this. Learning to read my Bible, learning to have a devotion, like waking up, um, reading a little bit of the Bible, praying to God. Uh, I learned to memorize scripture. And then I learned this other thing, uh, sharing my story. We call it witnessing, right? Testifying to what God has done in you. I can remember, I mean, this is at West Point, think it. So on Saturday, uh, Friday nights, we would come and gather as, you know, as a, you know, just cadets. We'd go in this room, we'd pray a little bit, sing some songs, and then we divide it up, like two by two. We'd divide up, and in groups of two, we would go through the cadet barracks, and we'd knock on cadet doors, and we'd say, hey, uh, can we come in and spend a couple minutes with you and talk about God? And then we would share the gospel. I mean, I, I, that was the beginning of my Christian life. I was doing like, like, like a month after becoming a Christian. And I would tell you, 
Um, we got rejected a couple times, a lot of times. Sometimes people would let us come in and we'd talk to them. Um, every once in a while, someone would be very receptive of our words, and God would seemingly do something right in our midst, and we'd pray with the person um, to know more about God and, and perhaps um, receive him uh, you know, as, as Savior. This became so commonplace to me that at one point, I thought I was doing the work. I thought that it was my words, my presentation of the gospel that was saving people. I was trying to reconcile people to God. God didn't call me to reconcile. He said, he's the reconciler. The message is mine. So the implication of this text is, is that we don't save anybody. There's no power in your words. You might tickle somebody a little bit. You might encourage somebody a little bit. But the, the power is in Jesus' words. Paul, Paul would say in Romans 1.16 that God's words have the power of salvation for those who believe. The gospel has the power of salvation for those who believe. And so our text here doesn't say, Jesus saved you, now you go save others. Don't we get that wrong sometimes? The text doesn't say, Jesus reconciled you, now you go reconcile some folks to Jesus. Here's what the text says. We have a ministry of reconciliation. It's not our job to save. But we do have a responsibility to share. What have I been sharing this morning? I've just been sharing the gospel. I'm not even preaching to you. I'm just talking about the gospel. That's all I'm talking about. Our responsibility is to share the good news about a God who came, lived among us, died on the cross in our place for our sin, resurrected again, and he calls us to himself. And in his reconciling work, he calls us to share what he has done in our life. We're just ambassadors, folks. We're ambassadors of the king. Our part is not just diplomatic and governmental, though. It's actually our story. We've literally been changed by this king. And so the message that we share is our message. It's our life change because it's got to change your life. You have a story to tell. Do you remember at all what it was like when you did not know the Lord and the process that he took you through to, to gain knowledge and faith of him? Do you know the story of, of how God saved you? Could you tell it? If, if you don't know it and if you can't tell it, you need to. God is calling you as, as an ambassador. How do you share your story? How do you share it without glamorizing yourself, putting a spotlight on you, making too much of your sin and too less of Jesus? How do you do that? I don't know if you've know, I noticed this morning, I've kind of weaved in a little bit of my, my story, you know, of, of, of living a, kind of a good life and thinking that my goodness was going to commend me to the God that I wasn't even seeking. Him taking me to West Point and sort of um, reorienting me. I mean, that, that partially is my story. I left out a whole lot, but you have a story to tell as well. I mean, what's my story? I really did think I was good. Why did I think I was good? Because I did good things. I, I was independent. I, I made good grades. I was popular. I, you know, I, I, I was an athlete. I was social. I had all these things going for me, and my family, you know, to my regret, they, they reinforced it. And my head, I mean, my head was out here. And then I got accepted to West Point, of all things. And I went. 
And then God just, he took a pen, a, a needle, and it, he popped that bubble. And I was reduced to nothing. I mean, I was on my own after that. And it was very quickly at West Point, just through natural means, God reminded me that, hey, in this life, you need help. And when I wasn't pursuing God, how do I know God is real? Because I was not pursuing him at all. I was not looking for God. But Jesus found me. He found me through friends who invited me to a simple Bible study because they knew I sang. And, you know, that was part of the Cadet Gospel Choir. And in a slow, I mean, a slow amount of time, over six months, I slowly learned that my righteousness was, was, was no merit of me to God. My righteousness was a stinky rag to God. I needed, a right, I needed a righteousness that was outside of me. And that righteousness came from Jesus. And so that led to salvation. Everything changed in my life. Well, it was a slow process. But here's, here's what the slow process proved for me. I gained a slow understanding of the gospel. I stopped living for myself and I stopped living uh, more for God. Fast forward 30 years, I'm standing up here as your pastor. My, my story is still being written by God. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who God is. I mean, God still, he's not finished with me yet. Thank God, isn't it? Isn't that good? My wife's saying, thank God he's not finished with you yet. God is still writing my story. And, and here's my point. Guess what? You have a story to tell. God has called you an ambassador. He's reconciled you, and he's the reconciler, but he's given you a ministry of reconciliation. And that ministry of reconciliation is the good news by which you yourself have become a Christian. Um, we've been, in the last six weeks, going through this series of dealing with doubt. And the temptation would be that we need a lot of technical details. I just need, uh, I need scientific knowledge, or I need book knowledge. I need the right words to be able to refute someone who comes and says, well, I don't believe in God because I believe every religion should be able to, to give you access to God. Or I don't believe in, I mean, how can you trust a God that sends people to hell? How can you trust a God that, I mean, hasn't science refuted Christianity? I mean, and the, the temptation for us is, I don't want to talk about God because I don't know all those intricate details. And I'm, I'm not negating all the, the work that we've done over the last six weeks, but here's what I'm telling you. You don't need all the technical jargon. What do you need? You need your story. That draws people to you more than anything else, more than your knowledge. They need the emotion that comes from your story of you being reconciled to God. That, that thing that you commend to God for salvation, that you're nothing, he's everything, that you have no righteousness of your own, you've gotten it from Jesus, that's what you tell to other people. Here's what, you, here's what you need to know. You have a message to declare. What's that message? It's the gospel. You don't even need text. You don't need Bible text. It would be good if you used the Bible. You could use 2 Corinthians 5. You could use 1 Corinthians 5. You can use John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? But more importantly, you just need to use your story. The story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God's created us all. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us. Adam and Eve fell. Guess what? You've fallen too. How do I know that? Well, look at your life. But God has put in place a plan of redemption for you that he, on the cross, would die in your place for your sin to divert that wrath that God owes you because of sin Onto Jesus. Jesus has come. 
to save you, to forgive you, to make you new. And then talk about your life. You have a story to share. You have a message to declare. You have a story to share. What's your story? Let me, let me encourage you. When you're sharing your story, be honest about your weaknesses. Because we're all broken. That's not, a, that's not an unbroken person that, that lives on this earth. And so when you share the vulnerable parts of you, it draws people to yourself because it reminds them of themselves. Talk about the wounds in your life, idolatry, rebellion, false sense of righteousness. That's what I had. Your morality, it says you're good. That was me. Sexual sin, drugs, addictions. Talk about the bad news and the good news of the gospel. Make Jesus the hero of the story. And if you don't know your story, you got to think about it and you got to work on it. Work on it enough that you could tell it in a short amount of time, but that you could tell the high points and then land on the highest point of the good news of Jesus dying in your place for your sin. You know, some of you talk to your friends about going to church. That's pretty cool. But have you ever talked to them about the gospel? A lot of times we don't do that because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we talk to our friends about, you know, about just more than church and about them being sinful and going to hell, then they might not be our friends anymore. And you know what? That's true. It might happen. They might dismiss you as friends if you actually talk to them about the gospel, if you talk to them about Jesus. But here's the thing. If you have the courage to do what God is calling us to do as ambassadors, some of them will come to an understanding of the gospel like me. My friends took a risk of, tell, of inviting me, telling me about the gospel, and, I mean, 30 years, I'm living to tell about it. You have a message to declare of the gospel. You have a story to share, the story of your own reconciliation to Jesus. You have a place to invite people. I don't say this a lot, but, I, I mean, I'm encouraged to invite people to church. If you got a friend that's a skeptic or a doubter, um, even if you don't want to share the gospel yourself, invite them to church. Here's the, here's the cool thing. You guys go to the transit. It's not like Mount Zion or Greater Ebenezer United Methodist, uh, the, you know, like the Holy Holy Church. It's the transit. You, you tell somebody, I go to the transit. They're going to say, what? What is that? And then you get to say, oh, it's this pretty cool church. Actually, we don't, I mean, we meet in a school. It's unassuming. It's non-threatening. And what we try to do here is we try to make our, our service uh, attractive for a non-believer, someone who knows nothing about God and the gospel. And we try to make sure that when we come to church together, both Christians and unchristians, um, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear straight talk, not a lot of hyperbole, hopefully no hype. You're, gonna, you're not going to hear us sugarcoating the message of the gospel. But it's going to be done in a winsome, compelling, and interesting way, a way that makes sense. At least hope. I hope that's what you're getting. Um, I don't know if you all realize this, I mean, we're not genius marketers. We don't do a lot of marketing at all for our church. So how do people find our church? I don't know how y'all found us. I do. I mean, but here's the best way to get people to come to church. Invite them. You invite them to church. You talk about your story. You share the gospel. You talk about the God that reconciled you. You invite your friends to church. Here's some statistics. 22% say they never go to church. These are people countrywide. Get this, the U.S. is the fourth largest mission field. We are a postmodern secular, secular country. 23% of people in D.C. attend church consistently, which means 7 out of 10 don't. 
82% of people said they would be somewhat likely to attend church if asked. And what that means is if someone who is already acquainted with them, a friend who already knows them or a coworker, somehow that you've brushed aside them, they would go if they are simply asked. And so here's the danger. Uh, some of you are hearing me saying, yeah, we should invite more people to church. And I want you to do that, but you, I don't want you to do that out of guilt. You, sh- you shouldn't invite people because you feel guilty that you're not inviting anybody. You should do it because you're compelled. Look at verse 14. This is our last verse, and then I'm done. Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's the principal point that I'll finish on. That's our motivation. What's our motivation for, um, for sharing our story? telling the message of the gospel, of inviting someone to church, because we're compelled by our own love for Christ, the one who has loved us by dying on the cross in our place for our sin. And so I'm going to finish by praying. And this is what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that, that God will remind you of your story. I'm going to pray that you would have the courage to be a reconciler. That, that remember that he's called you to be an ambassador that you would rehearse the story of the gospel for yourself, but more importantly, you would rehearse it so that you can share it with those who are around you, and then you'd have the courage to invite somebody to the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the gathering of your church. Thank you for the gospel. This really has been nothing today, but just an articulation of your gospel. And some would say, you know what? That's not really a sermon. That's not really church, but we've gathered in your name, and that's all you require us to do. So take, uh, take these words... Take your words of inspiration from Scripture. God, make us acquainted with them. Help us to get, uh, to, to reattach ourselves to them, that we are ambassadors and we get the privilege of sharing our story with those who've never heard the name of Jesus. And so, more than having the technical jargon of being able to refute someone who doubts faith or the existence of God, impress upon us, give us courage to to test the waters out, knowing that the story of how we came to faith is probably more powerful than any technical jargon we could ever, uh, ever recite. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.